O risen Christ, open us to the power of your resurrection as we hear it proclaimed anew this day, that we too might rise to new life in you. Amen. A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 to 13, the word of the Lord. For by the uh, grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. Teamwork. All right. As I was saying, if you got a Bible, uh, Luke chapter 9, we're going to be looking at that just a little bit. It starts on page 1608. Um, yeah, back in the day, I was on a flight to Las Vegas. Friends were asking if I could join them there to work with them. And as I'm getting into my seat, I'm settling in. Somebody lifts up in the air a wallet and saying, we've got a wallet up here. Could you all check to make sure that you haven't lost yours? So I'm starting, you know, check my own pockets. You know, I'm starting to, to like, you know, worry, like, well, what just happened like everyone else in the plane? And after about 10 seconds of a little bit of panic, we're all paying more attention. And the flight attendant says, actually, this is just my wallet. But while I've got your attention, let me tell you about some of the safety features on this plane. Uh, yeah, after a little while, I realized he was just the warm-up act because then another flight attendant took over. And after a series of one-liners and cultural references that somehow perfectly explained the safety features, she started talking about what would happen if we lose cabin pressure. She talked about securing your oxygen mask, and then she said, and I still remember to this day, if you're traveling with small children today, we're sorry, make sure you secure your oxygen mask before assisting your children. If you're traveling with more than one child, choose your favorite, and then secure their oxygen mask next. Let's just say they had our attention. By the time it was done, we were already having a good time before we even left the ground, uh, and we probably never paid more attention to flight instructions and safety spiels before. You see, I found out later that that organization actually had a very strong sense of mission, summed up in the statement, to bring back joy to air travel. I wasn't just taking a flight to a job interview. I was experiencing a people living out the mission that they'd been given. So what about us? What about the church? What is the mission of the church? And what would it look like for us to actually live that out together? Well, that's what we're going to look at today as we look at Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. When the apostles, those same twelve, returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them and with him 
and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and, and looking up to heaven, he, he gave thanks and he broke them. And, and then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This past few weeks we've been talking about the welcome of Jesus. What it means to receive that welcome and to live that out. And yet the welcome of Jesus was never meant to stop at its initial recipient but actually to send out those who receive and to live in that out for the benefit of others to unleash the welcome of Jesus. You see, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus means that you've also been given a mission, a mission, uh, a purpose beyond yourself. And so as we look at this passage, I want us to consider a few things. I want us to consider what the mission of God's church is and what it looks like. What hinders that in our lives and how it can actually become a reality. Uh, first, the mission itself. If you look in verse 2, Jesus sends out his 12 closest followers, sometimes called apostles or disciples, on a mission to, quote, preach the kingdom of God and to heal. And let me tell you, this wasn't any random assignment he gave them. Because in verse 11, when the crowds are coming to meet Jesus, we see his ministry described like this. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. See, Jesus was, was known for his welcome, and we see this throughout the Gospels. We see him welcoming the weak and the sick and the disabled and social outcasts. His opponents pointed out how he welcomed sinners, people with notorious pasts and notorious present realities, those overwhelmed with their own shame. And then he ate with them. He rejoiced with them. He wept with them. He even affirmed the dignity that he saw in them and did so publicly. So when we see the crowds coming to Jesus, it should come as no surprise that he welcomed them. You know, what we see in verse 11 is that the welcome of Jesus didn't stop with just a warm smile. It says he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed it. He had something to say, and he had something to do. And he wasn't just making things up as he went. In, in John 8, verse 28, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Jesus himself was on a mission. A mission lived out in word and in deed. And what we see in verse 2 is that uh, Jesus sends people out to do the same thing that he's been doing. A mission characterized by Jesus' own mission. A mission of both word and deed. As Jesus says elsewhere in John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Friends, the, the welcome of Jesus was going to come through the followers of Jesus. It would come through their words, word ministry as we often would call it. Uh, broadly speaking, uh, Jesus called it, quote, preaching the kingdom of God. In verse 6, it's described as, as the gospel. In Matthew's gospel, once it's described as the good news of the kingdom, but they're all just different ways of describing the exact same reality. You see what that phrase meant, this good news or the gospel in Jesus' day, 
was this. You see, when a, a new king took the throne over the Roman Empire, a new emperor, it was announced with these words, Hear the good news. Caesar is king. See, the gospel in Jesus' day was the announcing of news of an objective, history-changing event that would affect everybody. And the news of Jesus is this. God is becoming king on earth as he is in heaven through the person of Jesus, the one who is the Christ, this long-awaited king of Israel. Jesus was proclaiming to his people, and he was welcoming people into his kingdom. And throughout history, the primary way that he would do so is actually through his followers. You see, Jesus sends people out with a message, a message that echoes his own message, a message of this kingdom of God. And in, in Jesus' speaking ministry, he painted a picture of this kingdom by painting a picture of God as a king far more holy than anybody expected, and yet far more gracious than they ever hoped. You see, for those who saw God as a king who simply gives rules that you can obey and try to gain more good favor, kind of buy him off by that way, Jesus taught them that God's standards were a lot higher than people thought, undermining their religious pride. And while the people twisted God's commandments and tried justifying their own sin, Jesus would actually speak up for those who were being oppressed when religion went bad. He said that his kingdom is like buried treasure in a field, that it's like a priceless pearl, something so valuable, so precious, so beautiful, that those who see it are willing to give everything to have it. He told them that God rules his kingdom. The God who rules his kingdom is actually like a father, longing for his rebellious child to come home, celebrating their repentance, and welcoming them with open arms. His message not only came in the stories that he told, but in the ways that he interacted with people, and often in ways that people did not expect, and it was what sparked curiosity. It's what asked people to come and look closer. You see, the welcome of Jesus came through his words, and in that we find our own model. What would that exactly look like and sound like for us? Well, in Mark chapter 5, we, we get one example. There we read about a man whose life was radically changed by Jesus, so much so that when Jesus got in a boat to go on to the next place, this guy tracks him down and begs to go with him. Instead, Jesus says, no, like, go back to your people, to, to your family, to your friends, and tell them, quote, how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You see, word ministry can simply mean sharing with others how you've experienced God's mercy in your life, how he rescued your troubled marriage, or maybe how he gave you contentment in the middle of your singleness. Maybe it's how he delivered you from past addictions, or maybe it's how he gave you the freedom to actually open up about the things that have been enslaving you. Maybe how he got you off the performance treadmill that only leads to weariness. You know, it can be as simple as sharing how you've learned to relate to God based on what Jesus has done, rather than based on what you have done. A message that most people haven't even considered is a possibility. It can be sharing the freedom you've experienced by trusting that Jesus with the throne of your life rather than trying to be your own king, your own Lord, your own Savior. And if Jesus really is your king, if his ways are your ways, if you value the things that he values, that's going to show up in a lot more than just your words. That's, that part is what we often call deed ministry, a ministry of deeds. We see it in verse 1 and in verse 2 where Jesus gives them the authority to heal and they go out and they do exactly that. Sometimes Jesus sends people out to minister to tangible needs, sometimes far away, sometimes very far away, but sometimes the needs are already right in front of you. In verse 12, Jesus' disciples saw a need. Thousands of people in need of food and far from the closest schnooks. Send them away, they said. 
But Jesus had other things in mind. Verse 13, Jesus commissioned them to join him in meeting that need, saying, you give them something to eat. They only had five loaves of bread. They only had two fish. But as Rebecca Pippert put in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, the presence and power of Christ brings us his power and ability to use our limited resources in limitless ways. So in verse 16, Jesus took what they had to offer and multiplied it, sending them out to serve. And when it was over, thousands had eaten their fill, and there was more food left over than actually what they'd started out with. And in the process, Jesus showed them a few things about his mission, about their mission, about our mission. He showed us that it's not simply about what happens to people after death, but also what happens to people in this life as well. Whether it's feeding the hungry, helping the sick return to health, or something else, deed ministry is always about restoring things to the way that they're supposed to be, whether physically, socially, relationally, spiritually, or culturally. In fact, in Revelation 21.5, Jesus described his own mission as nothing less than, quote, making all things new. See, God is on a mission, the renewal of all things, nothing short of everything, the environment, the business world, the arts, communities, relationships, everything. And as a pastor friend of mine used to say, God is on a mission, and you have a role to play in that. What Jesus showed his disciples in verse 9, is in chapter 9, is that the mission isn't just a project. It's not just a trip you take, though it can take that form, but it's actually a lifestyle of seeing and responding to the needs that you see around you, whether overseas, across county lines, or right next door. You see what what the disciples use. What disciples are called to do is basically utilize what they already have, even as humble as it is. You see, every believer, the scriptures say, has been given spiritual gifts, have been given particular talents and abilities that when we use them in service, the kingdom of God goes forward. We can tell from the rest of the scripture that the miraculous uh, abilities that were going on in this passage weren't always in play. It wasn't necessarily a permanent, always going to be that way thing. And yet the concern for people's physical needs and responding to that need, that did go on forever and has gone on throughout the history of of the church, no matter the time, no matter the place. So what does deed ministry actually look like for Jesus' followers? Well, historically, it looked like Roman Christians that were willing to take in unwanted babies who were left to die of exposure outside the city on their trash heaps. You can just imagine these tiny, exposed, helpless babies lying in that pile of what was thrown away can barely hear their attempted cry because they groan so weak for lack of care and nourishment. And, and as somebody scoops them up, brushing the trash off of them, cleaning them up, holding them, you realize it's the first affection that they might have ever experienced as warm human skin touches their own for the first time. This happened over and over in the Roman world to the amazement of the watching world. And yet the ministry of deeds did not stop there. By the 4th century, we hear the Roman Emperor Julian famously saying this about Christianity, how it had, quote, uh, been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, as he called the Christians, care not only for their own poor but for ours as well. What about in our time? 
would that look like in America today? Some of you have heard the story a few years ago. Uh, Tim Keller shared the story of, of a woman that he eventually met at church. Uh, she was new at her job uh, long before they met and made a fairly significant mistake one day that actually cost her company a lot of money, like the type of stuff that ends your job and maybe even your career. You can just imagine, you know, the cold sweat, the, the shaky hands as she, as she goes to the doorknob to turn the knob to the office of her boss, expecting this is the end. What she didn't expect was what he did next, and that was actually take the blame for her mistake. She knew about bosses who would take credit for their workers' good work, but never anybody that would actually take the blame for someone else's mistake. So she asked him about it. She, she said, like, what's going on here? He explains something along the lines of, well, I've got a good reputation. I've got some good social capital. I could probably take the hit better than maybe, than maybe you could. But she knew there was something more, so she kept on pressing till eventually he says, okay, I'll tell you. I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus took the blame for me, and I've always wanted that to shape the way that I live, including with those that worked with me. Her response was telling. Where do you go to church? You see, he saw the need that was right in front of him. And he saw that he had the ability to do something about it, even though at his own cost, and he took action. And though it wasn't his intention, his ministry of deed eventually opened the door for the ministry of word to be active in her life as she eventually ended up at that same church. In a sense, she had been welcomed into the world where Jesus is king by showing her what type of king he is, the type who takes the blame for others, the type that uses their power not to crush others, but to protect them. What she saw in her boss's actions that she couldn't get out of her mind was nothing less than the welcome of Jesus. So how about you? What opportunity has God given you to minister to the others in their need with your deeds? As Keller would later put it, there are some needs that only you can see. There are some hands that only you can hold. There are some people that only you can reach. So who has God put into your life that has not yet experienced the welcome of Jesus? Uh, for you, it might look like meeting a need in them that no one else can see in a way that they never expected they could even ask for. It can mean providing uh, a listening ear to them in the midst of their grief or the midst of their loneliness. Maybe for those of you in school today, it could mean welcoming the new kid or the unpopular kid to join you and eat with your friends at your lunch table. It might mean something as simple as watching someone else's kids so they can have a long overdue date night or opening up your home or, or dinner table to people who are far away from home or family when the holidays roll around. As, uh, you see, as those who've been given a mission, our words and our deeds actually matter. That's how the welcome of Christ goes out. Just think about it. How will they know that Jesus hasn't given up on broken people but actually seeks their restoration? How will they know that Christ cares for his world, for his creation, and he cares for its restoration and redemption? How will they know but by what they see and hear and experience from the body of Jesus, his church? Whether we're talking about broken relationships, broken homes, broken bodies, broken environment, broken hearts, God seeks their restoration and calls the body of Christ as his instruments of their redemption through our words and our deeds, unleashing the welcome of Christ in the process. So what gets in the way? What hinders this mission? Why doesn't this seem to be the reality everywhere? 
For some of us, it's just that we've never really thought of the, the mission of God's people this way. Maybe we've seen it as, as preaching the gospel and, and saving souls, and that's it. Or maybe we've seen it as, as making the world a better place by serving, and, and that's basically it. And yet for Jesus' followers, it's not an either-or choice. It, both of them are aspects and unleashing is welcome, and they actually work best together. Maybe some of us, though, figured the mission of God's church was only for professional Christians, uh, for, for church leaders. Maybe you're even thinking now, I mean, the 12 that Jesus sent out, weren't these guys like in a different category from the rest of, of Jesus' followers? And yet the very next chapter in Luke's gospel, Jesus sends out 70-some people who aren't even given particular names that we know of to do the exact same thing. You see, all of Jesus' followers have been commissioned to unleash his welcome. Some of us, though, we, we know that we're called to a life of mission, but maybe we've mistaken that mission for something that it's actually not. For starters, this mission is probably not something that you can do totally online. I like Facebook, but I know it's no substitute for actual face time, and I don't mean the app on your phone. You can like something, you can post something on social media, but the reality of doing that, even on something that's, that's a real zinger, that's a real, yeah, gotcha, it's probably a lot less effective than you actually think. So a few years ago, I put this poll on my Facebook page, and here's the results. I asked people to, to, quote, like this post if you've ever felt condemned or judged by someone's post on a controversial subject. Comment if you've ever had your mind actually changed by one of those posts. I think the final tally was something like 50 to 1. If you count the person who said, like, does an Onion article count in that? You see, we can easily think that we're changing things for the better, that we're actually changing minds, where in reality we're just adding probably to the loneliness and the anger already present in our world. In fact, research now shows that our online venting and our angry rants just make us more angry. And in the process, add to that stereotype that Christians are just like other people, just angrier and more judgmental. For many of us, though, what hinders us from living out this welcome is actually our busyness that we have no time for those outside of our own Christian bubbles. And that can take a lot of different forms. You know, for some of us, we like to get stuff done. Uh, guilty as charged. We like to be productive. We like to maximize time by cramming 29 hours of work into our 24-hour days. And so we overcommit, and maybe some of us actually like that way. You see, in our culture, busyness has become like, like a status symbol. Like, you know, who has the fullest a calendar, who can spin the most plates at the same time, and we want to achieve that in many ways. Or maybe we actually feel guilty if we don't have something that we feel we're supposed to be doing at every single given moment. But in the midst of that, we realize we have no time for people, no time to consider their needs, no time to get them to know them well enough to build trust that one day we might actually have the right to speak into their life. And yet sometimes our busyness is actually a sign of a deeper problem. Some of you here knew me back in 2005 when, when I was a, a new intern. That summer, I had a full-time job. I was DJing two events every weekend. I was leading a community group. I was organizing Sunday morning greeters and teaching myself Hebrew, at this, trying to do it at the same pace as people that were taking it as a full-time class so I could save money by testing out of it a few weeks later. I told Greg about my ambitious summer plans, which I was a few weeks into, and, and he took the moment to remind me, though he says he doesn't remember um, to this day, that, that, you know, Keith, a lot of pastors and churches start looking a lot like each other after about five years. And so he asked me if I wanted to pastor a church of burnt-out workaholics that can't say no to anything. 
So I said, so I, so I dropped one of those things. And yet it wasn't the only time that year that I realized that I bit off more than I can chew and actually had to let go of something. And, and one day after doing that, I was, I was sitting in the, in the, the very back pew on, on the right uh, with my arms spread over the, the pew in a, in a posture of relief because I, as a full-time student, I just quit one of my part-time jobs that I was also doing. And it hit me that I liked being the high-capacity person. I liked being able to do more than anybody else could do. And it wasn't just fear of debt that, that drove my busyness and my overworking. It was my own pride. That and the fact that I didn't know how to not be busy. And maybe that's some of you in this place this morning. Making time so that others can experience the welcome of Jesus. Time to engage in ministry of word. And indeed, to actually be a part of people's life, to be available for them, actually means saying no to some other things. And maybe we don't know how to do that. Maybe our identity is so tied up in our work and being the perfect parent, the perfect employee, the perfect student, that saying no to even one thing feels impossible. For some, it's maybe those who are over us that ask us more than they should. Maybe it's the unrealistic boss or an advisor, or a professor, or a teacher in an environment where overworking has become the norm, and everybody's afraid to push back against the unhealthy culture, while nobody notices the elephant in the room, that the person leading the drive is on their third marriage, they've got failing health, and all of their kids hate them. But for others, maybe it's not the demands of those over us, it's really the demands of those under us. Maybe it's the reality of having small children, where everything takes more time than we think than it should. You see, sometimes it's something that we don't really have any control over. Sometimes it's things that we're just called to at the moment for a season, but sometimes it's things that we actually do have a say in. And if so, I want you to try saying something that you may not have done in a very, very long time. It's saying no. See, there's always going to be more that you can do. There's always going to be ways that something can be approved upon, but if you're living your life as if this impossible goal of perfection is obtainable, if you you just do one more thing. There will never be a time for anything else and your soul will shrivel. Maybe that's how your soul feels today. Because maybe the greatest hindrance to unleashing the welcome is that you've lost sight of what gives your soul life. So it feels like just one more thing to have to do. So how does this life of mission unleashing the welcome, how can it become a reality? Well, by remembering how Jesus welcomed you. You see, God is on a mission. And the reason that you have a role to play is that you are, first of all, the object of his mission. That scripture reading that we heard earlier from Jenny ended with these words from Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of of Christ. Or as Christopher Wright put it, all of us start as outsiders who have been brought near and welcomed by God. You see, when Jesus gave his great commission at the end of Matthew 28, he calls his followers to make disciples of all nations, to help others become followers of Jesus, that they might know what it means for Jesus to be their king. And he reminds them in Acts chapter 1 that their mission extends to, quote, the ends of the earth. It's a global mission realize who Jesus was talking about in there, who that included. See, everybody in the sanctuary is part of those 
nations that he spoke of. To Jesus' first disciples, we are not the starting point of the mission. We are the ends of the earth. You see, unleashing the welcome of Jesus begins with realizing that Jesus first sent others to bring you his welcome. If you're a believer today, here's how Jesus saw you and what he did about it. In Matthew 9, verse 36, we read, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Ask the Lord. Pray, he says, to the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You see, Jesus saw your plight. He saw your need. He saw your inability. How you were harassed and helpless in your own spiritual state. How you were like sheep without a shepherd. And he called others to get in the game. First by their prayers. And then by their own words and their own deeds. See, if your faith is in Jesus Christ today, you are the answer to literally 2,000 years of ongoing prayers. Prayers that led people to be sent in response. Maybe it was a relative, maybe your own parents, a co-worker, a classmate, a friend, maybe a stranger on a plane, so that eventually you would experience the welcome of Christ yourself. See, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, the Bible refers to you as a lot of different things, and one of those uh, phrases that's used is, you are a child of Abraham, the Old Testament patriarch, which means that God's mission for him and his family is your mission as well. A mission summarized in Genesis 12 to speaking to Abraham, he says, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Friends, we are welcomed so that we can welcome others. Bless so that we can be a blessing because the gospel always comes to us on the way to others and the message of that gospel is this. The king of the universe knows you better than you know yourself warts and all. He he knows your weaknesses. He knows your failings, your your sins, the reasons for your shame and the reasons for your fears. And he sees every reason why you might expect to not be welcomed by him. And seeing all of that, what did he do? Well, he emptied himself of his power and his privilege by taking on flesh, coming down to earth, and dwelling among us in the person of Jesus. You see, we tend to think that the way that you're welcomed by others is by putting your, your best foot forward being on your best behavior, doing that one more thing. The scriptures tell us that because of our sin, because of our attempts to be our own king, our own savior, our own Lord, that we're actually by nature enemies of Christ as the true king. How will his enemies ever experience his welcome? Well, let me show you. I think we've got a a picture for you there on the screen. So you recognize this as a scene from Homer's Odyssey. Homer's Odyssey, in this uh, story, the the city of Troy was under siege, and the Greeks were the enemy. For years, they'd been at odds with the citizens of Troy, and they had no right to be welcomed into the gates of that city. So what did they do? They built the Trojan horse, that horse there in the middle. And so, when it was left outside as a gift, the Greeks were also inside that horse. And so the Trojan horse was welcomed into the city with celebration. So were the Greeks. So were their enemies. Friends, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if he is your king, if you'd enter into a dynamic new relationship that the scriptures call as in Christ, then he is your Trojan horse, this irremovable suit of righteousness, the means by which God welcomes 
his enemies and celebrates their arrival. You see, just like that horse would have covered over the Greeks, so Jesus covers over your guilt, your fear, your shame, your failing, so that God doesn't see that. He sees when he welcomes you, Jesus, and welcomes you as he'd welcome Christ himself, rejoicing at your presence, celebrating your arrival. You see, what gets us into the gates of the kingdom is not our worthiness, but acknowledging our unworthiness. See, we're not welcomed because of who we are, what we've done, but because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done, living the life that we should have lived but couldn't, dying the death that our sins deserve, and doing it all on behalf of those who acknowledge our need and come to him in faith as a response. And when you've experienced that welcome, a message amplified as you live it out with others, you'll find that you can't help but want others to experience the same welcome and unleash it into their lives as well. I first experienced the welcome of Jesus in seventh grade. We'd moved to Nebraska the year before, and let's just say I wasn't adjusting well, partly because I love talking about how much better my previous hometown was than my new one, something that people in my new town didn't really love hearing. So by seventh grade, uh, my friends were, the people I ate with at lunch were those that didn't have any other friends, including a guy named Dusty. On Friday, he called me and asked me if I wanted to go to his youth group. So I said, sure, and I went, and it was fun. And so the next week, he called me again, and I said, sure, and it was fun. And as the third Friday rolled around, I hadn't gotten a call yet. So I called him, and I said, can I come to your youth group? Is that okay? I didn't know how things worked. And he said, yes. In seventh grade, I was used to rejection. In fact, I pretty much expected it, but I experienced something very different in that place. They saw my quirks, but they didn't mock me. During the weekly uh, group devotional time, they heard my uh, attempts at humor, thinly disguised as, as actual prayers, but they didn't condemn me for it. In fact, there was one night playing a game when I hurt myself, and I was screaming and cussing really, really loudly so that everybody could hear, and yet they didn't, you know, get on my case for that. In fact, they were just more concerned to see me hurting and wanted to comfort me. Looking back, my youth pastor one day told me that he could tell that nobody was about to change my mind about anything. No one's going to twist my arm into anything I wasn't ready for. And that was okay. See, instead, over the rest of that school year, all they did was unleash the welcome of Jesus on me. The last youth group of the school year, those wanting to be prayed with and prayed for, invited me to stay after. Uh, You know, stay after the sharing time for those who, you know, want to be prayed for. And I said, sure. I'll give them moral support. After the prayer time was over, one of the volunteer leaders asked if everybody there knew if they were a Christian. Simple question, right? But when he said it, something finally clicked for me. Back then, I didn't really cry, but I started bawling like a baby. You see, the question helped me realize that when I heard them pray, it was like they were talking with somebody they actually knew, but I didn't. Those past few months immersed in a Christian community showed me that what it actually meant to be a Christian and showed me that I wasn't one, but I wanted to be. That night I prayed with that youth leader, crying out to God for forgiveness and heard for the first time about the assurance that comes with trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross on your behalf. You see, it was there that I encountered the welcome of Jesus. And yet it it took more than just one person to make it happen. One person invited me, 
but it was another who gave me a ride. It was others who offered me hospitality, others who offered me time, others that I didn't know before that offered me friendship, one who boldly yet graciously asked me a pointed question, and another who came alongside to teach me the message behind the community whose welcome I'd experienced. Nobody could say, I did it. You know, I wasn't a notch on anyone's belt. It took a community, it took a team, it took a church, each doing what they can with what they were gifted to do for the one God had put right in front of them. They weren't perfect people by any means. They had quirks too. Some of them came from broken homes. Some of them had a rough season in their life where they didn't handle the hurts they'd experienced very well. Some of them struggled to live out their faith when peer pressure mounted. Others eventually got in trouble with the law. All of us were imperfect. Works in progress. But that's the church. An imperfect community with a mission. A community who's experienced the welcome of Jesus so that we can unleash that welcome for the benefit of others. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you not only give us the mission of all mission, the mission of seeing the renewal of all things, but you first of all welcome us. Father, we are the ones that were far off, and you drew us near. You came to us. You welcomed us, not because of who we are, but because of who you are and your graciousness and your mercy and your love. Father, we pray that you would renew in us the joy of of our salvation, that it may overflow in us, that we may unleash this welcome that you have welcomed us with for the benefit of our city, of the nations, of the world, through our words and through our deeds, working together. pray this in Christ's name. Amen.